As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The increasingly expensive tariff war with China is heating up to an all-time high, and many farmers are fearing for their very livelihood. We have a detailed report. If you're a rancher in PG&E territory, how are you going to get water to your livestock in the event of a mandatory power shutdown during hot, dry wind events? We talk with one Placer County rancher about that worry. Have you heard about the produce safety rule? Many California growers who sell to farmers markets have big concerns about that, but there will be exemptions. We talk with the CDFA's project supervisor about the implementation of that portion of the Food Safety Modernization Act. A record number of beehives were decimated this past winter, and the USDA has decided not to continue their honeybee survey research, citing budget cuts. We have all that, crop reports, the week ahead in weather, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The president took his bruising tariff fight with China to a new level, sending Wall Street into a frenzy and leaving farmers and ranchers exposed to additional retaliation from China. That's according to Politico's Morning Agriculture newsletter. After Trump proposed duties on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods last week, Beijing responded by halting all purchases of U.S. farm goods as well as devaluing their currency. Then the Trump administration designated China as a currency manipulator. That's for the first time in 25 years, and that's enraged Chinese officials and is potentially provoking further retaliation. The escalation could leave a dent in Trump's main argument for re-election, a strong U.S. economy. The USDA's Gary Crawford has more details. Trade negotiations with China seem to be at an impasse, and China has just announced it will not allow its state-run importers to buy any U.S. ag products. So can U.S. farmers expect more help than the current market facilitation program calls for? Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters at FarmFest in Redwood, Minnesota. There's no other intended plans there. The $16 billion market facilitation program is the plan for 2019. Uh, again, that's the current. Uh, situation. If President Trump has some other ideas, we'll talk to him depending on what the market does for the rest of the year. But there are no plans right now doing something else uh, currently. Are there plans to hold more talks with China? We're expecting China to come back to the U.S. We sent a team over there last week. The Chinese were uh, uh, fairly intractable in their uh, decisions last week, but they did talk about coming here in September. We want to continue talks. Purdue said it doesn't help if you don't talk. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. 
The American Farm Bureau Federation is urging U.S. trade negotiators to reach an agreement with China following the nation's halt of U.S. agricultural purchases. AFBF Executive Vice President Del Moore says the announcement is a blow to farmers. Their announcement that they are going to basically stop importing all U.S. farm products to quote our president, Zippy Duval, it is a body blow. And I don't know any other way to describe it. It is a punch in the gut that is just taking away one of the most important and largest markets that we've spent decades developing. From 2017 to 2018, U.S. agricultural exports to China fell more than 50 percent, dropping to $9.1 billion. Now, Moore says farmers who are already struggling may lose a market the industry spent decades building. We did $9 billion worth of sales last year, and if that goes away, and we've gone from a $20 billion market, and now it's back down into where we were almost 20 years ago. So that kind of a hit all across the agricultural spectrum has got the markets just reeling from what this is going to mean. Moore says farmers need a quick resolution. Our farmers and ranchers tell us they appreciate that the president is in the fight to try and get China straightened out. They appreciate that he has provided some trade mitigation tools But what we really need are these trade agreements like the USMCA, the Japan Agreement. Those kinds of things send a positive message, give some certainty as to what's going on in trade. But this China situation has gone on far too long, and we need to get it resolved. Michael Clements, Washington. You're probably having a better week than USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue. His job the last few months has been to attend listening sessions throughout the country, hearing from farmers who are growing more and more impatient with the tariff battles. And he's taken to starting off these listening sessions with a little bit of a joke. What do you call two farmers in a basement? I said, I don't know. What do you call him? He said, a wine cellar. <laughs> that was last week at Farm Fest, an agricultural gathering in Minnesota. And then he heard directly from the farmers. Here's a sampling. Is you know, President Trump is, is trying hard to make these trade deals, but you know, some of the rhetoric, the farmers are starting to do great again. We're not starting to do great again. Things are going downhill and downhill very quickly. If the farmer goes in to see his lender in the fall and uh, says he, he's sorry, he doesn't have enough money, he can't make it, the market, he didn't get a price, the banker doesn't tell him that you're a patriot, you don't have to pay your bill. You know, we've, we've worked a long time to develop these markets and we're going to lose this market share. It's just not going to come back in a day or two. So how, how do we make this work? Mr. Secretary, I'm rooting for you the administration to be successful, but I just want to tell you that I'm not sure how much longer our farmers can wait. Uh, The trade assistance does not make them whole. And many farmers throughout California are echoing what that woman just said. Farmers want to support Donald Trump, but they're having a hard time making it and don't know if they'll survive. Following years of low farm income, bankruptcies are on the rise. The American Farm Bureau Federation says delinquency rates are above the historical average and trending in the wrong direction. Allison Wilton, AFBF economic analysis intern, says the number of Chapter 12 bankruptcies is rising significantly. Since June 2018, there were a total of 535 Chapter 12 bankruptcy filings. This is an increase of 13 percent. States in the Midwest, such as Kansas, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, had the highest number of filings, and the Midwest overall had a total of 240 filings, the highest in the nation. Wilton says the depressed farm economy is driving the uptick in bankruptcy filings. The deteriorating financial conditions for farmers and ranchers are a direct result of several years of low farm income, a low return on farm assets, mounting debt, more natural disasters, and the second year of retaliatory tariffs on many U.S. agricultural products. 
Currently, Chapter 12 bankruptcies are capped by a $4.1 million debt limit, which Wilton says prevents many family farmers from filing. However, Congress passed legislation to increase the cap. The Family Farmer Relief Act updates the Chapter 12 bankruptcy eligibility by raising the debt limit from $4.1 million to $10 million. This allows more farmers the opportunity to qualify under Chapter 12 bankruptcies and gives producers and their creditors a better chance to reorganize and avoid mass liquidation, ultimately preventing further consolidation in the agriculture industry. Chad Smith, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report in Tulare County. Corn for silage was maturing with some fields being harvested. Black-eyed beans were sizing up. Pods were drying. Cotton continues to be irrigated and cultivated. Alfalfa was cut and baled. In Siskiyou, Trinity, and Modoc counties, cattle were moved to rangeland at higher elevations. San Mateo County, the hay continues to be cut and baled. Fresno County corn continues to be harvested for silage. Alfalfa yields are good with lower quality, with prices decreasing. In Fresno County, alfalfa seed has been dried. Harvest expected to begin soon. In the orchards, stone fruits are being irrigated. Apricot, peaches, plums, pluots, and nectarines continue to be harvested. Post-harvest pruning and mechanical topping is ongoing. Some older stone fruit orchards are being pushed out after harvest. Persimmons, figs, and olives are maturing well. The grape harvest is underway. Irrigation and mechanical vineyard maintenance continues. Valencia oranges are being harvested. Citrus groves were pruned and hedged. Some citrus were pushed out in preparation for new tree plantings. In the nut orchards, they continue to be irrigated. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachios are developing well. Almonds were treated for navel orange worm as well as mites. The orchard floors were cleaned up in preparation of almond harvest. The almond harvest began in Fresno County with the first shaking reported this season. Monterey County is reporting good weather conditions for lettuce. In San Mateo County, fall squash plants are in flower. In the Sacramento Valley, tomato harvest has begun. Tulare County summer vegetables continue to be sold at roadside stands as well as farmers markets. Producers are picking tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, cucumbers, and squash. In Fresno County, processing tomatoes and garlic have been reported with below average yields, and carrot harvest will begin soon. Out on the pastures, rangeland grasses continue to dry. Foothill rangeland and non-irrigated pasture remain in fair to good condition, though water was hauled to livestock in some locations. Supplemental feeding has commenced. Some cattle were moved to higher elevation rangeland, sheep are grazing in fallowed fields, and the bees are active in sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Placer County rancher Karen Sinclair recently talked with the California Farm Bureau Federation about her concerns on the ranch if PG&E decided to turn off her power during wildfire conditions. Most of our irrigation water comes as gravity flow through Placer County Water Agency and we have 17 inches of irrigation water that we run for irrigation as well as for our animals. Uh, we have water lines that run to our pigs and chickens and sheep and then the pastures have, we have a couple of ponds that supply water to our larger pastures. So there's been a lot of talk about PG&E having to shut off the um, electricity if need be due to these wildfire situations and I don't know, it's going to definitely be a hardship for a lot of people, especially people that do have livestock. 
that run a lot of their water supplies for their animals off of the um, the well system because electricity you need electricity for the wells it's definitely going to be a hardship for a lot of people farmers and ranchers who use electric pumps for livestock water say they're looking for generators and other backup systems utilities provide information about backup generation resources as well as vendors an agreement signing ceremony at the White House recently featured President Donald Trump, U.S. and European Union officials, and beef and meat industry stakeholders signing a deal that will allow the U.S. to nearly triple annual duty-free exports of hormone-free beef to the EU marketplace over the next seven years. In year one, duty-free American beef exports to the EU will increase by 46%. Over seven years, they will increase by another 90 U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer says with this deal, estimates have U.S. beef exports to the European Union will grow by over $270 billion a year once the agreement is fully implemented. The EU ambassador to the U.S., Stavros Lambrinidis, was among those signing the agreement at the White House, and he explained. The agreement will be now sent to the European Parliament, and we hope to obtain the consent as soon as possible. However, the European Council already issued its approval last month. And the reaction to the potential increase of U.S. hormone-free beef into Europe from members of the U.S. livestock sector? This is Jennifer Houston of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. For years, it's been difficult for us to get access to the European Union because of some non-tariff and restricted tariff trade practices. And we want them to be able to enjoy the high-quality beef that our American farmers and ranchers produce everywhere that's enjoyed by the rest of the world. And we are so excited that our European families are going to be able to enjoy that high-quality beef. Kevin Kester, former NCBA president and fifth-generation cattle producer, adds, We will directly benefit from this new agreement with the European Union. And Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue noted via press release the desire of EU consumers for high-quality products and how he believes that will translate into their increased purchase of U.S. beef exports. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. So how's the rice crop faring in the Sacramento Valley? Rice News caught up with one grower, and he has a rather optimistic outlook. Hi, I'm Tristan Nelson. We're out here in South Sutter County at Twin Creeks Ranch. We're looking at a field of M206 here. Uh, it was kind of an interesting growing season this year. A lot of rain early, cold weather. We were afraid that uh, it was going to negatively affect the crops, but it kind of seems like it hasn't done too bad. Um, right now, we're getting a lot of heads popping out and uh, the crop is starting to look like it's going to do real well. We're excited to get some harvesters out in the field and see exactly what we have out there. In the colder rice growing regions around Escalon and the Delta, M206 becomes a full season variety but has good blanking resistance as well as improved head rice over M104. M206 can be best described as a very early to early CalRose medium grain with improved resistance to blanking and a lodging, as well as improved potential for whole grain head rice. This is in the realm of if you think things are bad now, just remember they could be and have been worse. We're talking about the corn crop, and yes, only 57% of the nation's corn rated this week in good to excellent condition compared to last year's 71%. But just remember... We're not even close to the levels that we saw for low conditions in 2012. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, we had him look up what the corn crop looked like this first week of August during the 2012 drought, and at that time... We were sitting at just 23% 
of the U.S. crop rated good to excellent, and it fell a little bit lower as we headed through the rest of August. And 23 percent was the national average in some states far worse. You look at Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, less than 10 percent of the crop rated in good to excellent condition in early August. So yes, compared to that disaster, this slow developing corn crop, even with late planting in wet soils, doesn't seem quite so bad this year. But certainly not one of our better years. It's all relative, I guess. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey takes a look at the national weather picture for the upcoming week. From August 13th through the 19th, the cool air that's expected to settle across much of the country later this week will stick around across the northern half of the U.S. into mid-August. So we're expecting below normal temperatures from the northern Rockies into the Great Lakes region. But it will be hotter than normal as you move to the south, mainly from the California coast eastward through the southern plains and then uh, along to the Gulf Coast and the southern Atlantic states. In terms of precipitation patterns from August 13th through the 19th, we are expecting near or above normal precipitation across the majority of the country. And that's particularly true across the north and then through the eastern half of the country. But drier than normal conditions expected in the four corner states parts of the Intermountain West and across much of Texas. The AccuWeather forecast for the southern Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valleys looks to be seasonal. Plenty of sun, highs in the mid-90s, overnight lows in the low 60s. The California Department of Food and Agriculture is alerting growers throughout California about the Food Safety Modernization Act and their obligations to follow the law, in particular, the produce safety rule. Now, what's that all about? How will that affect you, the farmer's market grower? Well, the CDFA has mailed letters with surveys to determine which commodities they grow and if they qualify for exemptions. So let's find out more about this. We're talking with Michelle Phillips. She works with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. She is the Produce Safety Program Supervisor. And Michelle, what is the reasoning behind having the uh, FSMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, and the produce safety rules in particular? The produce safety rule is part of seven regulations under FSMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, that covers food safety. And it's a way for FDA to be proactive about food safety rather than being reactive when we have outbreaks or other issues surrounding food safety. It sets up proactive practices that farmers must follow designed to minimize potential for foodborne illnesses on the farms. What are some of those practices? Components such as training, a responsible person on the farm must be trained in a grower training course. Primarily that's offered through the Produce Safety Alliance, although there are other curriculums available now. All workers who handle produce on the farm must be trained in the principles of food safety and the importance of health and hygiene. There's also a record-keeping component. Uh, equipment and tool sanitation, managing your biological soil amendments of animal origin so that you're not introducing contaminants into the food that you're growing, um, as well as a few other things. And of course, this is going to cost a little bit of money for those farmers, but there are exemptions, aren't there? Yes, there are. So we are really focused on the educate before and while we regulate uh, as part of our produce safety program. And so we want to make sure that we're educating the farmers on what to do on the farm, what practices that they need to have in place, as well as um, educating them on exemptions that are available. For instance, if you grow produce that is 
grown for personal consumption, then you don't fall under the produce safety rule. Also, there's a range of about 30 products that are rarely consumed raw. Uh, produce such as sweet corn, okra, pumpkins, potatoes, those things are not covered because FDA deems that those are generally not eaten raw. In addition, you have a processing exemption. So if your food goes to commercial processing, such as tomatoes or peaches that are grown specifically for canning purposes, then those um, receive a commercial processing exemption because they have a kill step that kills pathogens that are likely to cause foodborne illnesses. In addition um, to that, FDA came out with discretionary enforcement authority or a decision on almond crops such as dried beans and peas and wine grapes. A lot of the those industries addressed FDA to say, hey, we have processing that we do for these wine grapes. They have a fermentation process that produces wine, and so that introduces the kill step. So those products are um, exempt from the produce safety rule. There are also farm size categories that might be exempt based on sales, isn't there? Yes, that's correct. So if you are a grower that your produce sales are less than $25,000 average during the previous three-year period, then you are exempt from the produce safety rule. Also, there's a qualified exemption. So if more than 50% of your annual food sales sold to a qualified end user, so you're selling directly to the consumer say, at a farmer's market, if 50% of that total value is less than $500,000 that you're selling directly to the consumer, then you're exempt from the produce safety rule. Now, we should point out that these are FDA regulations and the CDFA is just participating as an, an, an inspection agency on this? Yes. So we have authority from FDA. Um, when they implemented the rule in 2011, they asked all of the states to assist in implementing the rule within their own state jurisdiction. So there's currently 46 states that are implementing the produce safety rule throughout the United States. And um, we have a partnership agreement and federal funding. So we are authorized by FDA to enforce the law in California through inspections as well as education and outreach. We have a strong partnership with the California Department of Health that holds authority for public health in California through the combined partnership with FDA and CDPH that we implement the rule in California. So what farmers are concerned about right now are two things probably. One would be the survey that you mailed out and the deadline for getting that back and the information they want, and then any sort of uh, inspection that might be down the line. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now, the letter you sent out, I guess, back on July 22nd uh, has to be returned to the CDFA by when? So we asked for the letter or the questionnaire to be returned by August 31st. We realize that a lot of farmers are in the midst of harvesting, so that was a recommendation. We appreciate any input we get from farmers, so the sooner that they can get it in, the better. We are 
using the questionnaire to help us prioritize farms for inspection and so also to identify farms that are exempt from the produce safety rule. So if you mail back your questionnaire and it says, I'm not subject to the PSR or the produce safety rule because I have less than $25,000 in sales. We will update our, our records and then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't fall under an inspection. From what I understand, there are inspections going on now. You've done, I guess, the larger ones and now you're uh, going to be moving on to the uh, small and medium farms? Right. So the farm inspections are graduated in over three years, as is the compliance. So large farms, uh, we began inspections on them in about April of this year. So a large farm is considered anybody over $500,000 in annual sales, averaged over the three previous years. Small farms are farms that are between $250,000 and $500,000 in sales for the previous three years averaged. And then they would be inspected starting next January or beyond. What can a farm expect during an inspection? What does the process entail? First off, when we get questionnaires that come back with information regarding a farm saying that you're a large farm and you grow a commodity that falls under the produce safety rule, we'll have an inspector call you to get more information about the farm and see what your practices are, whether or not you have other food safety plans in place or if you have other audits in place and to see when your harvest activities are. They would set up an inspection and they would arrive on your farm at an agreed upon time that works for you as well as the inspector. Uh, so they would show their uh, commission and credential from FDA as well as their state identification card and talk about what the scope of the inspection looks like. They're going to want to observe your farm operations, ask about what practices that you have in place already, if you have a food safety plan in place. They're going to take notes and records. They're going to review your daily operations on the farm. Is there a fee associated with that inspection? There's no cost involved. There's a little bit of time involved in the inspection, but we really do want to stress that we are there to educate before we regulate. So we want to help educate the farmer on where they need to improve in order to come into compliance with the law. Part of the inspection process also will be a final discussion with the farm about where they need to improve their practices or if they don't. And we also leave them with an inspection report and our compliance officer follows up with the inspection report summary uh, within a couple of weeks to notify the farmer of where they need to do any corrective actions for the farm. Inspector is there to assist the farmer, so any questions that the farmer may have is fair game. So what should a farmer do to prepare for the inspection? So a couple of things that the farmer can do to prepare for an inspection is to check out our website at www.cdfa.ca.gov slash produce safety. We have a wealth of information on our website. We have flyers about what to inspect during the inspection process, produce not covered by the produce safety rules, a lot of um, helpful handouts for the farmers. We also have a mailing list that they can join so we push out information to the farmers. 
And then we also, for farms that are below the $500,000 sales limit, we offer what we call an on-farm readiness review. And those are a voluntary and free personalized discussion about the farming practices designed to assist the farmer in becoming compliant with the produce safety rules. They're still available for small farms through January of 2020. Well, we found out a lot about the produce safety rules and how they're going to be implemented from Michelle Phillips. She's the Produce Safety Program Program Supervisor. For more information about the produce safety rules, again, visit the website cdfa.ca.gov slash produce safety. Michelle, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you for having me on, Fred. It's estimated that honeybees pollinate up to one-third of all the crops we eat here in the United States. Honeybees are estimated to support about $20 billion worth of American crop production annually. Each winter, beekeepers, as you probably know, send their hives to California to pollinate the almond trees. Almond growers rent nearly 2 million colonies. That's over 60% of the nation's domestic bees. The annual cost for renting the bees is about $300 million, but the California almond economy is worth around $11 billion. There's a problem, though. Bee colonies are dying in large numbers. According to the Bee Informed Partnership Survey, U.S. beekeepers lost nearly 40% of their honeybee colonies last winter, the greatest reported winter hive loss since the partnership started its surveys 13 years ago. But federal funds studying honeybees are being cut. A review of the USDA's budget shows that the Honeybee Colony Survey is under review for possible cut or elimination under the title discretionary spending. The USDA has been directed to find and implement $4.7 billion in discretionary spending cuts, reducing the total to $17.9 billion. An initial report announcing the indefinite suspension of the annual Honeybee Colonies report was issued by the USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service on July 1st. The report cited a budget shortfall as the determining factor for the program cut. Well, that announcement drew criticism and also raised suspicions regarding the reasons cited to suspend the program, that according to the Lancaster Farming News. The USDA Honeybee Colony Survey provided a more frequent look into the health and conditions of beehives across the U.S. It provided beekeepers with information on conditions from season to season. It collected data on the number of honeybees by state each calendar quarter. The survey also counted those lost to a phenomenon now known as colony collapse disorder, which is decimating honeybee populations. Other factors believed to be contributing to colony collapse disorder include nutrition, food resources, environmental conditions, and pesticides. Did you know the Sacramento Valley is responsible for approximately one half of the nation's honeybee industry? How can farmers help ensure the success of that beehive and all those bees that may be sitting on their property for a while? What about beekeepers? What can they do to strengthen their colonies? We're talking with a bee expert, Joe Connell. He served in Butte County for 34 years. His specialty is almonds, olives, citrus, ornamental landscape plants. His work with uh, almond growers included research on pest and disease management, pruning, frost protection, irrigation, new rootstocks and varieties, and, of course, timely harvest. And, Joe, I, I guess it makes a lot of sense for farmers and beekeepers to uh, pay attention to their hives because uh, that's where the money is. Uh, you're paying good money for all those bees to do a critical job. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the the uh, almond farmers and uh, beekeepers are very much dependent on each other. The the almond farmer needs the beekeeper to bring hives into his orchard for cross pollination of the crop and to set a good almond crop, and the and the beekeeper uh, really needs the almond farmer as well because that's the earliest uh, some of the earliest bloom and pollen available, which helps the beehives begin to build up early in the spring, and uh, they normally leave an almond orchard stronger than they were when they came to the almond orchard. So uh, it's a really good thing for the honeybee industry uh, as well, and of course they also receive uh, income uh, for the pollination service that they provide to the almond grower. So uh, it's really a a synergistic relationship between the two uh, and and both benefit when they do things well. Farmers are really good at kicking tires of tractors when they go shopping, when they go shopping for bees. Uh, What's a good colony? Well, as far as colonies are concerned, um, for pollination purposes, we like to see uh, a beehive that has somewhere between 6 and 12 frames of of, uh, of bees uh, per colony. Uh, Normally in a bee box, there's nine frames, and uh, you'd like to have at least six to 12 12 in the total colony covered with bees. Uh, About an eight-frame colony is probably ideal. Uh, we know that um, that a smaller colony uh, has to keep the brood nest warm, and if we have um, uh, adverse weather, they they tend to keep the bees in the box to try to keep the brood nest uh, warm enough if it's cold outside and they can't can't fly if it's if it's marginal conditions. If you have a stronger colony, it allows the honeybees to fly under a little bit more adverse conditions because they have enough bees to keep the brood nest warm at the same time send foragers out into the field to cross-pollinate the almond crop. So that's why we like to have a little bit stronger colony uh, to to uh, take care of the hive as well as take care of the almonds. And those larger frame colonies, they certainly do a, a much better job of pollination. Wasn't there a 1970 study about colony size and pollen collection and the eight frame colony did three times as much pollination work as a four frame colony? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, when they when they compared colony strength back in that study, uh, they found that uh, uh, that eight frames of bees in a in a bee box collected three times as much pollen as a four frame colony. So, uh, really, you want to be in that in that six, eight, uh, ten frame range. And we know that if you have more than twelve frames of bees, and of course that's that would have to be a a, a double decker hive, you know, with a, a a box above the other one to fit twelve frames in there. But anything above twelve frames doesn't provide any additional. Uh, pollination benefits. So that sweet spot is probably around eight frames, uh, eight frames of bees per hive. And uh, when we say frames of bees per hive, what we're talking about is is bees that have uh, an active uh, brood nest where they've got a good queen and that's uh, laying eggs, and they have open open cells with developing brood in there. Uh, that the larval bees uh, require pollen uh, to be fed by the nurse bees that are in the hive. And so you want to have uh, an active brood nest with open cells where the nurse bees are feeding them pollen, and that puts a demand on the on the field bees to go out and collect pollen in the almond orchard, and that helps to uh, get more cross-pollination done in the field. Do those bees need to warm up uh, with maybe some sort of blooming cover crop first before they pursue the almonds? Well, 
cover crops, uh, it's difficult to get cover crops to bloom ahead of almonds because almonds are one of the first blooming, you know, crops in the state. But there are some covers, uh, particularly some of the yellow mustards that you might see blooming in January, a little bit ahead of uh, almond bloom. And if if possible, uh, if you can get uh, mustard established and get it to bloom ahead of almonds, then when the beekeepers bring their bees into an almond orchard around the 1st of February or the last week of January, um, they they might have something to go out and forage on before the almond orchard comes into bloom, and that that helps improve their um, that helps improve their diet, gives them a bit, little bit more diversity in in the pollen that they can collect, and that can help strengthen uh, the honeybees as well. What is your current recommendation for hives per acre? Well, normally we like to see two to three hives per acre, uh, eight frame colonies uh, to to have optimum pollination and uh, and nut set in the orchard. That's a uh, you know that's a significant investment for the for the almond grower. Prices for honeybees are you know ranging anywhere from 170 to maybe 190 dollars a hive uh, for the pollination service. You know it's a big investment for the almond grower and and a big income for the beekeeper. So. Uh, we want to make sure we have strong colonies and, and are in that two to three hive range per acre to uh, get the best set. Speaking of valuable bees, they're a target of thieves uh, currently. And uh, I guess what should be needed is uh, some sort of regulation for marking those uh, bee boxes with some sort of ID. Yeah, that's something that the beekeepers should be paying attention to because, um, you know, there have been uh, honeybee colony thefts where where uh, beekeeper will put bees out and come back and find out that his beehives are just gone and somebody has stolen them. And one of the things the beekeeper can do is he can uh, brand uh, the beehive with a uh, with a number that is registered with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Um, and that would, at least would help uh, recover the uh, beehives if they were stolen. Uh, so that's one thing the beekeepers can do. Uh, the other thing is that um, at least in the north state, in the northern Sacramento Valley, where we have a uh, this a bee breeding industry that has uh, uh, produces strong colonies and produces uh, uh, nuke uh, colonies for shipping to other parts of the United States. We have a tri-county bee notification service for the counties of Butte, Glen, and Tehama, where uh, the the beekeeper can be uh, uh, registered with the local county ag commissioner's office, uh, and then uh, to be contacted if there are any any pesticide applications going on in any fields or orchards uh, nearby where the bees are located. If the beekeeper informs the ag commissioner, so. That's a, another good way where the beekeepers can um, help to make sure that their honeybee colonies are, are protected. What about pest problems uh, with bees? What are some strategies for beekeepers and maybe farmers tending to bees uh, to avoid perhaps mites or fungal diseases? Yeah, the you know the honeybees have been under a lot of pressure with uh, with various diseases and um, and parasitic mites, and that uh, tends to weaken the bees, uh, can weaken the colony, and and if uh, they're not controlled, the beehive colony can die out over the winter uh, because of the stress created by by some of those uh, uh, parasites and diseases. So the beekeepers really have to pay attention to that. They got to monitor their hives, uh, look at. Uh, what's happening in the honeybee colony, and then make sure they uh, treat to control the varroa parasitic mite, which is probably the worst uh, pest that they face. That's a parasitic mite that gets on the back of the bee and 
sucks the bee's blood, and of course that weakens the honeybee, and it causes, you know, premature death and, and weakness. They also transmit a virus, which is a, a serious thing. There's a deformed wing virus that can be transmitted by varroa mites, and uh, and that that can uh, weaken the colony further. So. You've got to make sure that you're controlling the mites in your beehives. That's something the beekeeper's got to do. And, of course, then there are some other fungus diseases, uh, nosema, which is a gut fungus that uh, can also uh, make the bees sick, kind of like a dysentery for us. We have heard in the news over the years about colony collapse disorder of bees. Uh, fingers have been pointed in all sorts of directions as to the cause. Uh, last I heard, there was no known single cause what's the latest research you know about colony collapse disorder yeah that's no that's exactly right um uh, fred the colony collapse disorder disorder that has been in the media a lot uh is something that that doesn't have a single cause there's been a tremendous amount of research looking at why beehives uh, do collapse and and why the bees just kind of disappear from the colony which is what characterizes that colony collapse um and essentially, they they feel that uh, that there are many factors involved in in the colony collapse, and one of them would be a nutritional stress, where there's not enough um, diversity in the pollen available to the honeybees uh, as they go through the season. Uh, others, of course, would be pesticide stress if they run into um, pesticide uh, applications in the field that might either uh, weaken the uh, weaken the bees or they might bring back pollen. Uh, that has some contamination that gets fed to the larval honeybees, and then that weakens the colony and can cause uh, death of, of some of the larvae before they even develop into an adult bee. So there's some things like that that are a problem, um, and certainly um, you know weather that keeps them inside uh, and not able to go out and forage can stress the colony. So there's a lot of things that... Um, that are being looked at, the deformed wing virus, and there's some other viruses that attack honeybees. So as they looked into it, they found that there were many, many factors that seemed to contribute to overall stress in a beehive and that tended to uh, cause the hive to get weaker and maybe die off over the winter. And the future of bees, does it look good? Yeah, I think uh, I think the future for honeybees uh, looks very good. We have some excellent beekeepers uh, in in Northern California that are part of this bee breeding industry. Uh, they their business relies on having strong colonies and multiplying those colonies so that they can sell packaged bees to other beekeepers across the United States. Um, they do queen rearing and then sell packages of bees along with queens. Uh, to establish new colonies in some of the areas where it's really difficult to keep bees going in the in the northern part of the United States where it's much colder during the winter uh, they don't overwinter as well there we have an important industry here in northern california for the rest of the country and uh, and certainly it's you know it's it's critical for our almond pollination as well joe connell butte county cooperative extension thanks for a bit of your time today uh, well you're certainly welcome and it was my pleasure thanks for listening to the kste farm hour Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities cbp agents and officers are keeping people safe join u.s customs and border protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself 
Learn more at cbp.gov careers.